Dad, you've just got to make Dr. Markov stop pestering me. First it was flowers three times a day, and now he's sending notes with them. Here, look. I can't stand any more of this. You've, you've just got to make him let me alone. Well, the man must be out of his mind. I never heard of such presumption. Now, don't you get upset about it, Pat. I'll take care of Dr. Markov. You just forget about him and let me handle this. What are you going to do, Dad? I'm going to call on our friend and tell him very plainly that his attentions to you are unwelcome, and he must stop them immediately. You'd be careful, won't you? <laughs> careful? What do you mean? Well, you'll probably laugh at me, but when you call on Dr. Markov, will you take Bob with you? Pat, I can take care of myself. He won't make any trouble. But you said yourself he was out of his mind. Did you notice his eyes that night in your dressing room? They, they seemed to stare right through me. <laughs> You've been listening to too many horror radio programs lately. What you need is a good workout on the badminton court. Come on, run along. Fear not, fair lady. I shall build the reptile in his den. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett once again, and today I have a, a, a new guest. Yes, that yet another new guest to round out things for 2022. I have before us friends and neighbors, an author and an aficionado, a fan of one of the larger, well, actually, uh, smaller uh, niches of my favorite types of black and white horror, the Poverty Row horror films. Recently, Mr. David Annandale actually went out on a limb in public on social media and professed his love for one particular bit of Poverty Row horror madness. And uh, I, along with several others, you know, stood shoulder to shoulder with him. And I was the one who was crazy enough to say, hey, let's make this love even more public. Let's get, let's let people know that I don't care what it says on Rotten Tomatoes or any other stinking website. We love the Monster Maker from 1944. Mr. Annandale, when did you realize that the Monster Maker was the classic that it is? Oh, well, I guess it, um, since I actually forced my students to watch it a few years ago, it must have been before then. Oh, my. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. Okay, so when you say forced, I'm assuming that this was uh, that, that, that this was uh, somehow you sh you shoehorned this into uh, a class on English literature by way of gothic madness. What 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 could possibly bring this film up? Well, I'm making a note of that. I'm going to do that next year. Uh, <laughs> In this particular context, um, I had a chance to do uh, a course on uh, Poverty Row uh, and, and uh, B-movies uh, generally uh, about five six, five, six years ago. I say that it's probably actually 10 years ago now. Huh. And so that was uh, that was one of the horror films that I, I worked into the syllabus. Nice, but, nice. Uh, um, so I don't know if I could pinpoint exactly the when... It it really got under my skin. I mean, I think it's really in, in more in the last year or so as I've watched it over and over again, and uh, uh, that even the, the qualities that I, I felt strongly enough about to to teach it then I feel have come out more and more visibly to me. But it's a film that has 
been in my consciousness for most of my life. Mm-hmm. I first encountered it, as I imagine many uh, of my generation did, as in uh, Dennis Gifford's A Pictorial History of Horror Movies in the chapter on the curse of the bee people and he he talks about it there and there's the there's the one still of uh, of ralph morgan in the in the makeup and then i think when i was about so that was when i first heard about it and when i was about 12 or 13 i think it was it aired on pbs i think it was on their matinee at the bijou uh series uh-huh. and so this made it one of the first films that I, uh, from Gifford's book that I actually had a chance to see. So this would have been about 1980. So it's had this place in my heart, at least it's always been one of the, one of the early ones that uh, became something more than just some pictures in a book that I actually got to see the movie. Well, I think that for a lot of folks coming to the poverty row horror films, uh, most of them, who are going to stumble across them? Don't they? They don't really know what they're looking at. Uh, it's they're they are such a strange little uh, side road, or or mm. uh, uh, maybe maybe uh, a cul-de-sac in a weird little way <laughs> of uh, strangeness and bizarreness. Uh, primarily, we, we I guess we should uh, we should define our terms here. Uh, the poverty row horror films are generally uh, generally a group of movies that were made. Maybe you can start in you know the very late 1930s, but they stretch through the uh, the 1940s for most of the decade before petering out there. But uh, there were primarily three different studios responsible for what we refer to as the poverty row horror films. Uh, there was a, a, a slightly larger than it, it, it. When we throw Republic into the mix, it's it's really kind of weird to kind of do that to a degree, but the, it, it fits to a degree. Yeah, but the two yeah. major poverty row horror studios that I always think of and that most people do are Monogram, which produced a large number of them, especially with uh, Bella Lugosi in the saddle, and PRC, uh, who produced this particular film and a number of others. And if you were to list them as I just did, Republic, Monogram, and PRC, you're probably imagining a step down into lower and lower budget tiers, as well as uh, you, you, you could probably look at them in that way. It's the way I used to describe uh, the difference between Hammer and Amicus and Tygon Pictures. It's like, imagine the stair step down into lower budgets, and that's kind of what we're seeing here as well. So when we're talking about a film produced by PRC, you're talking about a low-budget film. Of course, you were also talking about a low-budget film in the previous two studios, but here it really gets interesting. Uh, and by interesting, of course, I mean sometimes sometimes you wonder how they managed to get this shot at all. <laughs> I think it was Dennis Gifford who said that uh, PRC was to monogram what monogram was to Columbia. So that gives yeah. you a sense of uh, <laughs> just yeah. how much further down the pole you go. But the joy for me is that I, I can't I can't remember precisely when I first saw the Monster Maker because there was a period of time in the late eighties and early nineties through uh, different uh, film magazines and uh, conversations with uh, you know fellow cult movie fanatics where I I started seeking them out just as much as I could. I'm pretty sure that actually the very first of the uh, Poverty Row Horrors I saw was, of course, one of the Bela Lugosi films, but I can never remember if it was The Devil Bat 
or Black Dragons. And of course, Black Dragons is 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 it's worthy of a, a two-hour conversation all on its own, simply because attempting to make sense of it is nearly impossible, and it has such an audacious ending that there's no way to talk about it without going, "What were they thinking?" But that phrase. <laughs> That phrase, what were they thinking, is something that I think could probably be tossed in a lot of movies and really, honestly, definitely at The Monster Maker. Now, you singled out when you uh, when you wrote about it online. I was glad that you did not shy away from my favorite aspect of the movie, which is that it is sadistically bizarre. Uh, it's it's dark in ways that even the poverty real horror films honestly rarely trod toward. I mean, they, they they might make a a kind of nod in the direction of some of the darker things that pop up in you know what we like to think of as uh, cinema that kind of you know strides the line between good and bad taste. But this one kind of just acknowledges the line exists and kind of starts trying to rub it out and pretend it doesn't. This is oh, a. Yeah. This is a sick. This is a sick little film, which is, uh, if, if you put it, if you just were to describe it to a modern uh, film goer, they might be hard pressed to think that this was actually turned into a movie in the middle of the nineteen forties. Well, and it seems to have uh, baffled people for for decades, right? The 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 consensus um, seems to have been you know decade after decade of just just how tasteless the the film is, and there really isn't any denying that. I mean, yeah. I think the this is this film is a kind of poster child for a problematic fave right uh <laughs> the the whole exploitative nature of the premise is i mean i'm i'm, I'm not here to defend that uh, it's it, it it's there uh it's undeniable and and the uh there, there's 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 no getting around that i, I guess i i will say that uh I mean, I guess the the film has the the courage of its uh, twisted convictions in the, the way that that it leans into it. And I mean, is it is it worse or more tasteless in what it uh, does than the 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 huge ocean of Alzheimer's exploitation films that are out there uh, from oh. the Notebook on, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. that. Uh, that 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 have, have that pretend to be tasteful, right? Uh, at least the monster maker doesn't do that. True. I mean, there's a there there was for a long period of time, it, t- it it was something that I'd started to notice sometime in the '80s. But the not Alzheimer's uh, exploitation, but the exploitation in the '70s, uh, they they it would be about cancer, but they wouldn't. They, often they wouldn't even say that they wouldn't even say cancer. Uh, but you know, there would be some tragic right. person who was slowly dying of some horrible dread disease, and they wouldn't even name it. And you know, be leukemia or cancer. They would. They would just be something specific. vaguely uh, 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 vague, but also that um, would in no way make them less glamorous, right? The tuberculosis yes. is always also good for this. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. And of course, that is that is a thread that has continued. Anytime anybody uh, gets to a certain level in Hollywood and is and is looking down those two or three paths that will definitely get you an Oscar nomination. So. Uh, <laughs> The 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 thing is though that this movie taking I mean Monster Maker takes so I mean, it, it takes something that I that the public was not at all aware of at the time I mean from what I can tell uh, Acromaglia or Acromag what they 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 use uh, Acro, which one do they use in the movie is it Acromaglia? they call it uh, Acromegaly in 
in this. Yeah, okay, okay. And uh, it's acromaglia. I can never remember which is correct after I've seen both of them in a sentence. It drives me crazy. Uh, But nevertheless, it's a real disease, but not one that anybody had ever thought to exploit on screen. Of course, it is interesting to point out that uh, if this is the first... It only took a few weeks after this one was in production for another studio to find someone who actually suffers from that particular disease and to put them on screen. And of course, that would be Rondo Hatton. Right. Uh, though he, I mean, he'd been around, he'd been in other films prior to, to 1944, though, uh, had he not? Um, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not positive, but I'm, I, I, I don't think that it had ever, uh, it had ever occurred to anybody to like put him front and center at the, at, at the, at the as kind of the, uh, part of the term face of a film so right yeah no that that's that's very true so certainly because because the the so the, the creep um prince uh, pearl of death is 44 also so i guess that's yeah, yeah. And, right. it's, and it's pearl of death that i'm thinking of as kind of you know, right where he's uh he's the uh the big bad in that particular sherlock holmes entry and uh what? Huh? and there's a there's a kind of awful symmetry to the fact that uh his last film uh, made by Universal, but then sold to PRC. So, uh, yeah. or so PRC corners the market on this particular <laughs> side of things. Uh, but I do. I, I also I, I would like to admire. I would like to publicly admire the fact that you you drew the specific things that I've always seen within this film. Uh, in that, it seems to be uh, once again. Uh, you're never going to go out of your way to compliment much in the way of a screenplay for one of the Poverty Row horror films, simply because sometimes I think they were just lucky that they had a script. Uh, if they, if you have any doubts about that, once again, check out the film Black Dragons with Bella Lugosi. Oh, yeah, that's just... Uh... <laughs> the thing's a mess. <laughs> that's the... I mean, that's the... I don't know, the... Um... The, the Gordian knot of Poverty Row horror film scripts. I mean, <laughs> it, feels like, it feels like it feels like either just chunks of it went missing, or some of it was never written and they were making it up on the fly. Or I mean, oh, anyway, nevertheless, we're not we're not here we're not here we're not here to bury black dragons. We're here to uh, we're here to admire the monster maker. And I think it's great that you do point out that, uh, of course. If there is a film produced in the 30s or 40s that is sicker than this film, it is one of my all-time favorite horror films of all time. It would be Edgar Ulmer's incredible The Black Cat. Oh, yes. And, of course, you point out very deftly that uh, that has got to have been an influence on this film, uh, at least the construction of the story. Uh, but you also, also you also point out that uh, it draws uh, some some inspiration from uh, the another Bela Lugosi film, The Birds in the Rue Morgue. That's got some you know some nice some nice bits and pieces there. But yeah. uh, also, I would say that it it also draws inspiration from spe- some very specific scenes in another Lugosi film from the thirties, uh, The Raven. Where, yeah, I'd say the the Raven's probably the the biggest influence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the the, the way it, it it kind of informs the structuring of the uh, of of the film and the 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 Poe obsession, or at least the Poe thread that runs through the Monster Maker. Well, the uh, the 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 plot of this film is is very similar to uh, the Raven in, in in more than a few ways, and it almost seems as if. Uh, <laughs> 
being short on time and 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 short on ideas and needing to get this thing in the can one way or the other. And the the fast the fastest way to a screenplay is always uh, you know scratching out names and specifics and one another screenplay and just running with it. And that kind of seems at times like what they may have done, but. That doesn't necessarily mean that what you're looking at needs to come off as some kind of second-rate copy. It usually will. Uh, And in this case, what it really comes off as is a a bizarre stew of bits and pieces from other places that somehow does turn out to be its own thing. Um, I, I, I have so much admiration for this film simply because, uh, well, let, let, let's put it this way. There's a lot to to take in with this movie. You've got you know, you've got a mad scientist. You've got uh, the the mad scientist with a very specific goal in mind that drives his actions throughout the story, which is of course his lustful desire for a woman who, strangely enough, looks just like his dead wife. It's like okay, so there's the there's the Poe influence, right? That's where we start getting right. into this whole. And his, his dead wife's even called Lenore. Exactly, uh, like we, so just rubbing we, your nose in it. Yeah. So you have that aspect of it, and then it's like the more we learn about our mad scientist character, the oilier, oilier and more disgusting a human being he becomes. Because oh yeah, I mean he he makes. I mean if you take the the stuff from the raven it, and it, it kind of twists it further i mean you can picture lugosi's character from the raven looking at uh, uh dr Markov here and going okay no hang on like just a second here <laughs> it's so true the joy of piecing together the monster maker is that okay this is a movie that is an hour and three minutes long and it also in that short space of time actually sports an entire section that doesn't need to be in the film. <laughs> it's literally, I will. I would argue, and I don't even think, I don't even think anybody's going to fight me. I don't even think you'll fight me on this. There's an entire little, like, almost 10-minute stretch of this movie that has no need to be in this picture at all. And I don't. it's not that I want it removed, because the madness that it, it involves, the madness it entails actually involves a man in a gorilla suit. But... Thereby hangs a uh, crash Corrigan. So let's discuss the various bits and pieces of this stew. Uh, first of all, yeah. let's talk about the cast. Uh, kind of a, a coup to a large degree. I've seen a lot of complaints that even though the the mad scientist, this, mad scientist in this movie is played by J. Carol Nash, uh, I've heard a lot of people say that he doesn't do a particularly good job in this film. I disagree oh completely completely i mean he's he's basically i mean the, the way he looks is is robert downey jr channeling peter laurie in a bela lugosi role <laughs> yes with the proper facial hair uh, but he's i mean he he, he un- decides to underplay it and i think that works really well because you don't you don't realize at first just how awful he is he goes yeah. from creepy to monstrous and the more you find out about him the just the, the more you recoil i mean he's one of the most greasiest utterly irredeemable mad scientists uh, or, or horror villains on record i'd have to say oh yeah and i think it is the fact that he plays it kind of uh kind of in a reserved fashion especially for the first 20 or 30 minutes of the picture 
that kind of, it almost makes you wonder at the beginning, is this guy just obsessed with this woman because this this young lady really does look like his dead wife? In other words, is he unhinged or not is actually something you can bat back and forth for the first third of the film or so. Of course, there does come a point when uh, yeah, all bets are off. We now know, no, 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 he's just crazy. Uh, he's he's a power-mad lunatic, and he's not even... <laughs> He he doesn't even he's not even walking around with his correct name. I mean, he's, <laughs> which we never find out what the real his real name is, do we? No, no. I I think that's 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 actually one of my favorite things. First of all, the name of his character is Doctor Igor Markov. Now, of course, that's a name that spells mad scientist out. It, oh, it, yeah. You know, I kept I kept wondering if it was actually an anagram, but I, I can't figure. No, I don't think it is. But the 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 joys of watching J. Carroll Nash play. Doctor Igor Markov, they're they're multitudinous, and, and they they culminate in a number of kind of what I'll just refer to as sick high points in the movie. That you now let's let's be upfront. Um, there's not a lot of action in this movie. This is not a film. No, that's true. It's a- there's no chase. There's no you know. There's no there's no stalk and slash. There's nothing you can even think about in terms of a murder set piece. Nothing like that. Uh, this is a movie uh, very much in the vein of let's not go too crazy here. We might knock over the sets. So what we have that that generates the crazy really is that of course like every researching doctor or mad scientist. Mr. or I'm sorry, Dr. Markov has his own gorilla. And you know, we've all wanted I our mean, own gorilla. I well, mean, yeah, I mean if if you don't have a gorilla in your lab, do you even mad science? I mean, it's, uh, yeah. it's Is that it basic. Is it possible at all? I mean, it seems to me that you either have one gorilla or a bunch of smaller monkeys and or apes or you're just not even trying. Yeah. Well, you see, uh, regarding that gorilla, I mean, as so as you've have said, it's kind of required. Right, and I would say that I mean, that yes, you know, the certainly the, the case could be made that uh, the the entire uh, gorilla sort of uh, wordless murders in the room org recreation that happens uh, with with the gorilla isn't necessary to the plot, which is no. true. However, I am going to argue that it is necessary to the film. Oh well, okay. Uh, in what way would you say? I, I, I can't wait for a good defense of the of, of that sentence. <laughs> so, okay, first, I one of the things that um, I mean, you're right that there isn't a lot of action as such in the film, it, but it does do what I think PRC does consistently in their horror films is that PRC delivers the goods, right? Uh, and I mean, you were talking about the, the the monogram films earlier, and I think there's there's an interesting difference that happens with the, the between monogram and PRC. And I, at first, I want to absolutely state that I love both, right? I could go on about Invisible Ghost for hours. <laughs> uh, but the the PRC horror films are the ones that are going to give you the monsters. Right? Monogram will give you the Ape Man, and then we can make a case for Return of the Ape Man. But then otherwise, not so much. But PRC is going to give you double, it's going to give you a vampire in Dead Man Walk. It's going to give you uh, the Devil Bat. It's going to give you the Flying Serpent. PRC, PRC knows you're here for the monsters. It's going to give you them. True, right. true. Okay. So the monster maker, well, we have 
you know, monster in quotation marks here, uh, given, uh, you know, so Dr. Markov injects poor Ralph Morgan uh, with acromegaly and leading to all sorts of uh, horrible disfigurement. So there's the, there's the makeup. Yep. But, but Ralph Morgan's a nice guy. His, his Anthony Lawrence is an entirely sympathetic character. So he's not going to be the threatening monster. He's no Glenn Strange as the mad monster. So therefore, PRC, smart cookies that they are, realize, well, we need something. Well, we've got a gorilla. Here we go. Put a gorilla in the basement, <laughs> and that'll give us the, uh, the, the stalk and threaten scene. So yeah. it's not this monster, it's that monster. And so we have our cake and eat it too. And therefore, just uh, when things might get uh, might by Peter out, or, we, or maybe we'd run out of plot, maybe we'd run out of script, or let's get several minutes we don't actually need a script for, but we've got a gorilla and we have Ace the Wonder Dog. We're <laughs> yes. rocking. Uh, yes, Ace the Wonder Dog, who, uh, of course, saves the day off camera. And it does also lead to one of the most, I think, uh, so one of the nice bits of dry humor that's also in the film. So after Markov has you know, opened the, 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 the gorilla cage and the gorilla goes uh, to to try to kill Tara Burrell, but then, um, uh, like you said, Ace the Wonder Dog intervenes. So, but as far as Markov is concerned, the gorilla's off uh, doing his dirty work. And so then he comes back to his lab and, you know, stops dead when he sees the the the, the uh, canvas drawn over the gorilla cage which he did not place there the night before pulls it back to find the gorilla in there it's <laughs> just this moment of him sort of well okay how did this happen yeah he thought he was gonna have to call the police and say oh my god my my <laughs> gorilla has escaped what whatever could have happened per- perhaps you people can track it down i hope it hasn't harmed anyone <laughs> He doesn't get that opportunity though. So no, no. Uh, well, oh well. I tell you what. Let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the plot of this thing before we start let's talking about any more of the. Uh, we'll we'll, des- we'll, des- we'll describe some of the other actors as we go along. Uh, uh, but let's uh, let's talk a little bit about the the plot of this thing. Um, the man who is set up to be disfigured later on in the film is uh, played by actor Ralph Morgan, who we'll, we'll talk about here in just a second. But he's playing a character named Anthony Lawrence, and he's a renowned concert pianist. And uh, he's in the, as the film begins, uh, he's in the middle of a performance where we're watching him on stage. And in the audience, we are introduced to his daughter, Patricia, who's played by Wanda McKay. And she notices there's a man in the next theater box uh, who is staring at her like he just spotted food and he's starving. Uh, that would be J. Carol Nash. Uh, she switches seats with her boyfriend, Bob Blake, but the intense stranger is uh, undeter- undeterred and uh, actually uh, goes out of his way during intermission to uh, wiggle his way backstage to ostensibly compliment Lawrence on his performance at the, uh, at the piano keys, but actually he, he wants to make sure that he uh, introduces himself and apologizes for his seeming rudeness to Patricia, who he explains is the uh, living image of his dead wife, Lenore. Uh, of course, this this sets off all the alarm bells for Patricia that you would expect it to. Uh, she's aware that this guy, there's she knows there's something off with this guy from Jump Street. Yeah. So she's no idiot, but at the same time, what, you know, what are you going to do? Surely, how often are we going to run across this guy, right? So she accepts Markov's apology, uh, but, you know, 
it's clear she doesn't really have any desire to be anywhere near this guy. Uh, as a matter yeah. of fact. And I think this whole scene is really nicely done. Uh, yeah. And yeah. again, so much of it is is, um, is is without dialogue, at least as far as you know, her reactions. Like You can see her discomfort building while she's... All she wants to do is watch the concert, watch her father perform. And yeah. you can see, you know, she's enjoying it. She's smiling, and then her 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 smile's becoming more strange. She's aware of this guy staring. You know, she's you know, yeah. She changes scenes with her fiance. Clearly, she's you know, it's the kind of thing that she's you know, obviously dealt with before, uh, which doesn't make it any nicer, right? And just you can see this sort of oh no, really look on her face, and and then like you said, yeah, she's got all the the alarm bells ringing that this guy is isn't great. And but then also setting the pattern of what's to follow, the the men in her life don't get it. They downplay it, all right. Uh, and even before, there's all sorts of awful things happening when uh, you know her fathers are jokingly says to his uh, to to Bob her uh, her fiance, you know, you're going to have to get used to uh, uh, other men admiring uh, your 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 wife. And uh, and she says there's a difference between admiring and ogling. Right. Yes. Uh, and but, uh, but you know, following the pattern that uh, dominates so many is almost all uh, horror films from the thirties and forties. The male leads are somewhere between uh, not terribly helpful and completely useless. <laughs> yes, the it stretches all the way back into the horror films of the thirties, where it the, the the character who really should kind of be the the hero ends up being useless in almost every every single one of these scenarios. Uh, it, it, uh, the, 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 the mad scientist or the evildoer always ends up pretty much hoisting his own petard. It has almost nothing to do with the hero unless the yeah, hero yeah. is just in the right place at the right time. Well, uh, over the next few days, Patricia finds herself uh, being gifted an unending series of flowers, bouquets of all types, and all kinds of different, you know, poetic notes about her beauty. Uh, and she's clearly, she's clearly not thrilled about this. And so she goes to her father, and uh, the musician decides, hey, I'll, I'll talk to Markov. I'll tell him his attentions are unwelcome. We'll get, you know, we'll, t- we'll take care of this. So he goes to Markov's uh, sanitarium, his his research place, his home away from home, a.k.a. the place where he can do his research, and speaks with him about this. Now, here's the interesting part. Here's the part where you go, this is another little element in the first part of the movie where you can easily think to yourself, ah, maybe this guy isn't evil. Because he's working, and he has been working for years, on trying to find a cure for this dread, disfiguring disease. And the thing that seems to have driven him to do this is that his wife died died from it. It is her death that seems to have pushed him to try to find a way to stem the, the advancement of the disease in people or to find a cure. But we are immediately made aware that this guy is just a little off, if not a whole lot, by his reaction to... Uh, this, this man coming to say, hey, look, stop harassing my daughter. When, well, when Laura's court confronts Markov, tells him to uh, tells him to leave Patricia alone, he's uh, uh, pretty unreceptive. And he even shows 
Laura to photograph of his lookalike dead wife to try to make him understand. No, no, I'm, I'm not making this up. I know that sounds like the kind of crazy story that somebody might make up to, uh, you know, to pursue a younger woman. But that's, that's, it's, it's, look, look at the photograph. It's true. It's true. Well, this does not go well. And the two of them get into a shoving match with Markov eventually clubbing Lawrence to the floor and into unconsciousness. <laughs> An evil scheme now hatches in the doctor's, uh, obviously warped mind, and we see him uh, steal into his adjacent laboratory where his assistant Maxine is working. Now, Maxine is a whole character we're going to have to discuss at length, but we'll do that in a second. Uh, Markov secretly fills a hypodermic needle with fluid from a bottle less than subtly labeled Acromagalia, or Acromegalia. I don't even know how they, I can't remember how it's labeled in the film. I can't remember how they spell it. I think it's uh, Acromegaly is uh, the way it's spelled. Acrom- this. Yeah, think, with yeah. a Y on the end. Yeah. yeah. I think, uh, I may be wrong. I think it's Acromegalia. I think this is how it's uh, used in Tarantula. Uh, maybe, yeah, maybe I think they add a, a, another syllable in there. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, you know, 11 years later, suddenly it's grown slightly as a word. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's just it's just slowly misshapen out of place. I don't know. Uh, well, he injects this into the veins of the unconscious pianist, knowing that once the disease is set in, our dear Markov will be the only person in the world able to possibly cure Lawrence, and he'll be able to bargain with him for Patricia's hand in marriage. This is the, the uh, this the, is this is something interesting. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, go, ahead, go ahead. Well, except that um, as I was watching it today, you so realize. Oh, wait a minute. Except he doesn't. He doesn't. He, he he. Later on, he gets the cure and knows how to uh, blackmail him. But you realize, at this point, he doesn't. All he can do is arrest the disease, but he can't right. reverse it. So, which in, I think, in some ways, this makes what he does even even more awful, because it, it, it's so. Is he just doing this for cruelty to sake? Then oh no, no. Uh, I think that clearly why he's doing it is that. He is known, as we learn later in the film, to be the foremost uh, authority on this particular disease. So if he turns up with it, he's gonna. You know, the doctors are going to point him toward Markov for well, any true. kind of treatment whatsoever. So that would, it would make sense that you know, yes, it's it, we're a little further into the story when he discovers an actual cure for it. But the uh, the the fact that he would be able to like arrest the disease and, and and kind of bargain with him about keeping him alive and keeping the disease from advancing to get what he wants, you know, it's yeah. it's, it's almost just as good. That's true, and I think uh, now that you say that, he didn't expect. I think he expected Lawrence to come back to him much sooner, right? Because yeah, when yeah. he when he tells. Uh, Wanda McKay to you know if you notice something, uh, you know get your father to see a doctor. So I think he was expecting him to come back much sooner. He wasn't counting on uh, uh, Ralph Morgan to resist, 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 resist until things uh, have reached a, a a critical stage. Yeah, and he I mean he waited so long that when he finally he sees his own physician, you know it's it's. We're to the point where he's actually, you know, f- not just uh, it's not just that his uh, piano his piano abilities have been affected. It's he's actually misshapen. His face is starting to be uh, misshapen in horrible, horrible ways. Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Maxine, played by Talia Burrell. She's Doctor Markov's right hand woman, and for some reason seems to be. And this is this is where the movie plays fast and loose with what we what we are supposed to surmise 
maybe guess at and actually know. Uh, one thing we know for sure is that she doesn't seem willing to not be his assistant. It's the underlying reasons that are kind of uh, up in the air and questionable at certain points because at different points in the, in the film, we either get the impression that she is in love with Markov. Yeah, she does state that pretty explicitly. Right. But there are a few times in the movie when she's expressing her, uh, shall we say, displeasure with mm. what she knows that Markov is up to, where it appears that he may be hypnotizing her, and therefore, in some way or another, controlling her actions. Yeah, and I that's uh, there's an interesting ambiguity there, which right. I think, uh, is, for myself, is actually is, is quite productive uh, for the film. I think it, it works in its favor. So there's, because, so, I mean, it's been pointed out that uh, it would be much clearer that he was hypnotizing her if uh, the film did the, you know, the, the trick of, you know, put the, you know, put the lights on his eyes. Uh, like, oh, yeah. You know, the, 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 the trick that goes back to Dracula, right? Um, but, um, so that would certainly make it clear to the audience, yes, he's hypnotizing her. Because there's two scenes where you, you see him sort of looming over, staring at her, and he uh, and he repeats a command and she backs down. Right. So, and so, yeah, sure. If you, you know, pinpointed the uh, lights into his eyes, uh, then it would, oh yeah, okay, he's hypnotizing her and uh, the audience would get that immediately. But certainly by 1944, that would be pretty old hat. Uh, we uh, it's been in Dracula. It's been uh, there's a version of it. I think in the Mummy. We get it in Svengali and on and on and on. Right? It, it's it's always there. Whereas here, we don't know for sure if if it is hypnotism or it's just his tyrannical will, right? And, uh -huh. and I mean the the awful truth is that people who are trapped in abusive relationships are not being kept there by hypnosis. No, there there and, there are many other reasons. Yeah. Yeah, and so the the first time it happens, she does have this kind of this look on her face that is that shock, or is that uh, a trance? It, it you could go either way. The second time it happens, she just she kind of turns away. She doesn't look hypnotized. She just looks browbeaten. So the, the film creates a kind of space there where we can believe if we want to that he's hypnotizing her but it doesn't have to be that uh and i think that's also part and parcel of the the monstrousness and the the danger of dr markov is his belief essentially for him desire equals possession uh and uh belief equals reality and he is strong enough to be able to make those things happen. Um, and there's some other examples too, but I, I think we'll, we'll get into that down the road. Well, I think it's interesting that uh, you, the case, the, it would be easy to make the case within the structure of this story that Maxine is actually kind of, uh, She's kind of, it's implied that she's kind of going along with this after having gone along with a lot already in this relationship because she makes it very clear this is how we as the audience learn about the, the fact that 
uh, Dr. Markov isn't, uh, isn't even really Dr. Markov. I've got the, the dialogue here. Uh, yeah. Maxine says to him, uh, this is, she's, you know, this is after she, she realizes that he's injected, uh, injected Lawrence with, uh, the disease. Uh, she says, uh, you're not even a doctor. You stole a name and laboratory notes from the man you killed. And then Markov says he deserved to die and his death made it possible for me to escape from Europe as the real Dr. Markov. Now, the, the, I love that bit of dialogue before I go further. Yeah. Think about what he just said. He deserved to die, and his death made it possible for me to escape from Europe as the real Dr. Markov. In other words, in the space of, what, less than two sentences, <laughs> he has shifted from acknowledging that he stole the name and laboratory notes to calling himself the real Dr. Markov. Yeah. Which yeah, is and that's, know, that's a vision inside his own personality of how he justifies yeah. these things to himself. Exactly. And that, that's what I mean, how for him, belief becomes reality. And, uh-huh. and, and to a degree it does, right? Because, I mean, he's, he's writing journal articles <laughs> about uh, glandular disorders, and he does find a cure. <laughs> for, you know, he, he, yeah. he, he surpasses what the, the, the other doctor, the real, the real, real Dr. Markov did. But for him, he is now the real Dr. Markov. So this is, I mean, I think the, he simultaneously, right, is is an imposter, is is a fraud, but he does also seem to be a legitimately dangerous genius. Yeah, he does seem to have. I mean, it's possible we're never told. It's possible that he was a doctor himself. And in the, the next lines of dialogue, Maxine says, uh, uh, and reap the rewards earned by another man with years of work and study. And then Markov says, what I took from him was small repayment for what he tried to take from me, the love of Lenore, my wife, the woman I worshipped. But his love cooled as I knew it would when he looked at her beautiful face and saw the ravages of the hideous disease. Maxine says, did you deliberately inoculate her with that dread? And he interrupts her and says, I did. <laughs> I knew if she were no longer beautiful, no one else would want her. Then I would have her all for myself. But she could not and stand that, the sight of her own face. Now, here is where it gets really tangled up. And you know you're dealing with a Poverty Row horror film. You will recall that after I injected him with the disease, it was allowed to proceed to this stage. Enlargement of the head, the feet, and so forth. But from the moment I gave him an injection of X-53... There has been no change in the condition, neither progressive nor retrogressive. I have every reason to hope that this new formula will prove to be a complete cure for the disease. Think what it will mean to have the power to control a dread disease like acromegaly. The only living man to have such power. And why are you the only living man to have such power? You know why. Yes, I do. And you're not even a doctor. You stole the name and laboratory notes from the man you killed. He deserved to die. And his death made it possible for me to escape from Europe as the real Dr. Markov. And reap the rewards earned by another man with years of work and study. What I took from him was small repayment for what he tried to take from me. The love of Lenore, my wife, the woman I worshipped. But his love cooled as I knew it would when he looked at her beautiful face and saw the ravages of the hideous disease acromegaly. Did you deliberately inoculate her with that dread disease? I did. I was determined that no other man should try to take her from me. 
I knew if she were no longer beautiful, no one else would want her. Then I would have her all for myself. I... But she could not stand the sight of her own face. So she killed herself. This is incredible. Only a madman could do a thing like that. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to put you to one child of At least I'm not a madman. Stop. You are going no place. You are going no place. Go to your room. Stay there. Was? Okay, so the real Dr. Markov that he murdered and took the place of, was he researching acromegalia? Or, see, I'm going to screw the word up every time. Was he researching that disease or not? In other words, he he uh, our, our our crazed madman in, injects the disease into his wife to make her hideous. Yeah. But where did the idea come from? And like I say, if he stole the name and the, the laboratory notes of a man and his work has been continued by this crazy person. Was that doctor already? In other words, what came first? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're into kind of black dragon weirdness with the uh, black dragon's weirdness with the uh, with with that kind of you know who who is what and, yeah. and what sort of uh, uh, tests were or uh, you know medical experiments were, were going on. I mean that that is certainly it's an incredibly dark moment, right? Where we we realize you did what, right? Because I mean, so far the whole you know mourning for his lost Lenore, okay, all very very Poe and okay, yeah, tragic backstory. We we've seen that before. You can um, almost you can almost have some sympathy. Yeah, you yeah. I mean, you know, you know. Oh yeah, I think uh, the uh, operative word there being almost, right. uh, and uh, I mean. More warning signs when the 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 poem that he sends to uh, Wanda McKay with the flowers is a quotation from Poe's "To One in Paradise." You know, to, so it's a poem to someone who's died. Uh, the the obsessions uh, coming through there, but okay, you know, all still all very Lugosi in um, in the Raven. Right. But when we get to this, when we find out that he injected his wife with this, and so he's he's obsessively going after someone who you know it's kind of like wife 2.0 that he wants but that he he effectively killed um it we it just becomes this the spiral into down into this this really deep abyss of of darkness and you're right it is very confusing okay so what so what was the research before and uh huh the on the one hand, it's a very effective property row hand wave. You don't need to know, so we're not going to tell you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I think it does um, fit in with this pattern with with him that we see where like again the where he wills reality into being so that he sees himself as the real Doctor Markov. He has erased the 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 other Doctor Markov's existence in every conceivable way. Yeah. To the point that he 
well, like when he says he calls himself the real Dr. Markov, he sees himself that way. His previous identity has also been erased. It has vanished along with the, the previous Dr. Markov as, as if they didn't exist. And so whatever the the other Dr. Markov was doing, whether it was research on acromegaly, whether he was in the, in the, uh, the real Dr. Markov's assistant, um, whatever that was, it seems to have disappeared and no longer matters because uh, it's only the present reality uh, and and what he's doing that does matter, uh, because this is also one of those scenes where he imposes his will on uh, on, on on poor Maxine. And, and think about it for a second. Uh, Maxine lays all this out for her, so she's aware of all of this hideousness that immediately paints this this guy as an insane villain. And the only way that you can imagine her still sticking around is if she slowly got this information out of him over time. In other words, she slowly put these pieces together over time, and now she's just maybe for the first time spewing it all out to his face. In other words, connecting all the pieces together and, and accusing him. And, uh, it, it, and that makes sense within the structure of the story because once she's done this, there's probably a clock that goes off in Markov's head that's a yeah. that just is starting to tick down on, well, I've got to get rid of her because she knows all this stuff. And I've really kind of been ignoring the fact that she probably knows all this stuff. But now that she's starting to balk at what I want to do, eh, time to move on. And of course, it's a perfect dovetail with what the movie is hinting at pretty strongly, which is that one of the reasons why he's wanted to keep her around in the first place is to have a bedmate. And the movie doesn't, you know, go out of its way to indicate that that's what's going on. But it's very clear that this woman has been led on romantically in one way or another or is in the, the stage of a relationship that where it is either cooled because let's let's admit right up front that you access her bedroom by going out of the house and going up a separate staircase. Uh, she's not even in the house proper where Markov lives. Maybe that wasn't the way things always were. Maybe that's what things have devolved yeah. into. Who knows? The movie isn't interested in that. But I mean, the, he does say at the beginning, he tells her that she that uh, he has never been interested in her, that she has always been his assistant, and, and that she will. that's all she will ever be. Uh, so, you know, how yeah. long has she been carrying this torch for him all the way along? Um, or, you know, what, but though you, you, you make a good point as to, you know, has there been moments where she has at least would have allowed herself to believe that there was going to be something or this time, if she does this for him, if she does this for him, how about this uh -huh. for him? Yeah. yeah. You'll finally uh, do that. Uh, and with, you can picture the escalation so that she on a couple of different levels and perhaps in what she does, but also what she knows has been the, the, the frog in the slowly heating water. And you can almost also imagine that it's very easy for her, especially when she starts to see the progress that he's making on finding ways to arrest this disease. That's another reason, you know, that you can justify sticking around with someone who is an unpleasant person at the, you know, at the very least and a complete right. lunatic at the other end of the spectrum. The, 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 the desire to, you know, do some good to actually help people with a horrible disease could be just another factor that would keep her around. Yeah, because she does seem to be committed to that, right? And and that is something that certainly plays a crucial role by the end of the film. True, very true. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, a kind of side character. Let's talk about Steve. Uh, Steve <laughs> is the rather tall fellow who uh, 
lurks around and is kind of a, an assistant, but uh, mainly he's muscle for Dr. Markov. And he is played by uh, someone who might be a familiar face, uh, but he's definitely a, f- a familiar name. Uh, the actor's name is Glenn Strange. And he wasn't too far removed from when he would suddenly get the tap on the shoulder from somebody standing on a, on a stepladder to uh, don the Frankenstein makeup for a couple of movies over at Universal. Uh, mostly Glenn Strange, uh, if, if you're, if you're going to see him uh, in, a, in a horror film, you're going to see him there. But if you're going to see him in most movies that he was ever in, he's a bit player in a whole lot of westerns over the years. Yeah. Uh, and he, he didn't have he's much also, to do here, though. No, not not a lot. But he's, um, I mean, I guess also for um, in the poverty row department, uh, probably best known for uh, in another being in another PRC production, which is the Mad Monster. Yeah, and it, I was certainly struck in this film just by how much he looked like Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, and given that he's uh, just a couple of years prior to this, uh, you know, plays a werewolf in in a film that's clearly trying to cash in on the Wolfman, uh, and then is going to succeed well with you know, at one removed with Lugosi in between Cheney as the Frankenstein monster. Uh, you, the uh, there's there's a lot of weird dovetailing between uh, Strange and Cheney there. Yeah, yeah, and I mean. The uh, he's he's a certainly an imposing guy, and you look at his list of oh, credits, yeah. and you realize, you know, my lord, he was he was appearing on television in episodes of Gunsmoke, you know, <laughs> way into the sixties, and the uh, wow. oh yeah yeah yeah, I mean, he, he was in an episode of Thriller with with Boris Karloff and you know Rawhide the Rifleman, Cheyenne Maverick. If there was you know once the the TV uh, production ramped up on television. It doesn't appear that he was ever really hurting for work, but he was also, you know, he was in so many westerns over the years that this weird little side road of, of playing, playing in a couple of uh, lesser known and, and usually poorly thought of horror films in the 1940s seems like kind of a, you know, a quick, you know, jog to the left or to the right before he got back to doing the thing that uh, always put food on the table. But the uh, it seems that that weird jog uh, has become. The, the primary source of his immortality, such as it is now, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, playing uh, the Frankenstein monster in, well, especially in Abbott Costello meet Frankenstein, right. of course. But, you know, he, you know, it, it also, he was also in uh, House, you know, House of Dracula and House of Frankenstein. And it becomes this thing where it's like, well, you know, he, he played that, he played the, the, the monster three times. And that's, you know, he, no matter what you do, no matter how, degraded the character was in those particular films you kind of gotta give it up for the guy he's six foot five and imposing and certainly seems so, game for the job so he tied Karloff in numbers anyway <laughs> well yeah there's that <laughs> but uh the uh fact that he's in this is kind of an odd uh an odd aside for monster fans and it's just another one of those uh things it's like if for monster fans, for the, for the monster kids, let's be honest, the, the names that are going to draw their eye are Jake Carroll yeah. Nash and Glenn Strange. Nobody else in this movie is really going to stand out for them. No, but it's uh, there's still a few that I think, though, that um, uh, I think for the you know, for, for the deeper dives are going to bring some joy. I mean, um, I mean, I have to say that that Wanda McKay is probably my my favorite poverty row horror heroine uh, after Louise Curry. Oh, okay. and uh, she's—I uh, mean, because we all—and you know, uh, while well, you get both of them, Voodoo Man, um, 
but she's uh, she's a lot of fun here. And Ralph Morgan, uh, I mean, we, we, you know, his his for at least the the two notable horror roles uh, for him that I can think of, uh, he really managed to corner the. Uh, the, the tragic figure in the horror film. So, uh, or at least the, I, I want to be careful with saying the tragic monster because he, I mean, he, uh, Markov is the monster here, but yeah. he does have the monstrous makeup, uh, Morgan does uh, in this, but also in Condemned to Live, where, I mean, has there ever been a a more pitiable vampire than the one who cries out, I'm afraid, as the lights go out. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, in absolute terror of what he's going to do. So it's, it's interesting to see uh, him as these completely sympathetic figures in the, the, these two Poverty Row horror films. Well, as far as Ralph Morgan's concerned, I've always been kind of kind of impressed with the... Uh the the job he had to pull off in uh, Night Monster. Oh, of course. What am I saying? Yes, that one too. Yeah, I think. Oh, that, yeah. What, what he has to do there is is really neat because he's the he's the character who's kind of at the center of the the very extremely mm. weird mystery that that movie is about. Oh yes. Oh, I love Night Monster, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and and Morgan there too. So uh, yeah, I mean, you know, count me as a Ralph Morgan horror fan, uh, <laughs> following his thread uh, threads uh, through. And yeah, boy, is he great in Night Monster. What's terrible is I just recently finally caught up with the uh, the Basil Rathbone film, The Mad Doctor, and I know Ralph Morgan's in it, but I cannot remember for the life of me what he does. Hmm. Yeah, he, that's one that I still have to catch up with myself. You know, you really ought to. Mad Doctor is a good film. I was, yeah, I was yeah, I, when, it, when I when it finally came out on Blu-ray is when I caught up with it and I was I was uh, okay. utterly shocked that I'd never I'd never seen it before. Yeah, I only uh, I think I only ran uh, ran across it relatively recently, um, just just reading about it. And um, when I first looked around, I couldn't there didn't seem to be a an easily findable version of it. So I'm gonna I've got to track down that Blu-ray. But uh, of course, there is one more little horror role for uh, for Ralph Morgan, and that would be as a professor in Weird Woman, one of the Inner Sanctum films, too. All right. Yes. 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 Well. Well, we could also count the monster and the ape, but I, I, I would count the monster and the ape. He's also got a role in The Creeper from nineteen forty eight. So maybe Ralph Morgan was yeah. in more horror films. Now that I think about it, yeah, maybe he was in more horror movies than I'm giving him credit for off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I've seen The Creeper. I think that that's like, re, you know, fairly, um, I mean, it, its horror elements are extremely borderline. Um, uh, it's like, even as, as old Dark House movies go, it's not terribly old or dark. Um, but it's, um, I mean, it is that, that coming in that fallow period between 46 and 51 where, where um, horror undergoes its... Um, uh, effective uh, extinction level event, um, <laughs> yeah, that, really. uh, yeah, the, the, the like of which we wouldn't see again until the nineties. Very true, very, very true. But the uh, I'm, I'm, gl- I'm glad you're such an admirer of Wanda McKay. That's an interesting, uh, interesting thing because I'll be honest, I've, uh, beyond this movie, I've not really thought that much about her. Even though I think I've seen her pop up in a, more than a couple of films. Uh, I remember, I remember that she was in uh, the Black Raven, but uh, in Bowery right. Midnight. Yes. But honestly, yes, yeah. my, my, memory, well, yeah. my memory of those roles are are are, are yeah. Well, she's, she's she's a very engaging presence, I think, in in, in all of those. And 
there's a, a kind of no nonsense quality to her characters. In I mean, I, I love the fact that well, I mean, Bowery at Midnight. Um, uh, she she's uh, close to. Um, I mean, I, I think uh, I give the edge to Louise Curry because she's just got this spark in um, in both Voodoo Man and the Eight Man, where um, like there's there's a hard boiled quality to her that um, is okay, just yeah, yeah. so much fun, right? I just love and I love the way that she banter's back with the her male leads. Uh, but uh, Wanda McKay in, in Bowery at Midnight uh, has, has got some of that uh, Louise uh, Curry quality in where she just doesn't take anything from uh, the the uh, her her truly appalling boyfriend in that film. Um, <laughs> And uh, who's you know I guess is a zombie at the end I don't know, uh, uh, but uh, she's she's also just a very I think um, I, f- I feel like she's a very real grounding presence in in the Monster Maker and in in Voodoo Man as well. Uh, she's uh, and also you know as, as ever the the one who who sees more than the male characters around her will, will admit. I mean, she's even being gaslit by her fiance, uh, in, in the monster maker. Um, and, uh, you know, she, you know, she, if, if she doesn't get to save the day exactly, uh, in, in the monster maker, she's still the sensible voice of reason throughout most of the film. Well, uh, the movie kind of, we, we we can talk about how I mean I I, I don't know how uh, how uh, spoilery I want to get other than uh, to say that you know it's a poverty row horror film that's you know eighty years old eighty plus years <laughs> old uh, if you're gonna see it you just you know go to YouTube it's there it's waiting for you it's not that difficult but at the same time uh, I, I I'll, I'll hold back on a few details but one of the things that I think is uh, rather interesting is we discussed earlier. How this is a movie that's an hour and three minutes long, and there is a a, a short stretch of, of time there where the movie uh, kind of takes a side road and has the the man in a gorilla suit go off and uh, attempt to kill uh, Maxine, uh, and uh, Ace the Wonder Dog of course saves the day, and and as I've said before, I would argue that that segment of the film. Uh, it, 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 I, I, I go back and forth as to whether it's necessary or unnecessary. By necessary, I would say, if I were to defend it as being necessary, I would say the movie needs some kind of menace, some kind of something yeah. in there to bridge uh, as we get, you know, to bridge us to the third act before, uh, you know, everything comes to a head and we get the, the announcement that we always know we're going to get. But at the same time, uh, it uh, you know it's it's like watching uh, it's like watching uh, a whirlpool. It doesn't you know a small whirlpool. It doesn't really do anything other than just distract you for a few minutes. And no, uh, yeah, it's true. You you could you could remove that scene entirely, and as far as the bot's concerned, you know, it, it's highly unlikely anybody would notice. True. Yeah, you know, they you know they people might wonder why there was why we were introduced to a gorilla early on if nothing was done with it you know come on Chekhov's gorilla let's let's get get on with this here <laughs> but but yeah in terms of the plot itself it has it has no bearing but uh, but it does but it but like you know uh, like you said it gives us the the threat it gives us the menace it's uh, you know PRC saying oh yeah well th- this is what you came to horror movies for so here's your moment. 
<laughs> yeah, really. I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I love the idea of Chekhov's man in a gorilla suit. That's it's. <laughs> it almost sounds like that. That needs to be the the, the title of a book. But nevertheless, uh, when we get to the idea where uh, Markov's uh, hard work and persistent uh, persistence with working on this particular disease has finally paid off, and he actually is effect. He's actually uh, got an effective cure. Uh, that's when you know the movie is really going to ramp up because we, we the, the the story has uh, advanced from just being able to uh, stem the development of this horrible malformation that is taking place on this character's body to actually being able to reverse it. So being good little horror movie fans that we are, especially in the 1940s, we can see how this movie is going to end. Huh. I bet you money, since it started with a guy on a stage playing a piano, it's probably going <laughs> to end with a guy on the stage playing piano. There's really only one guy in this movie who seems to be playing a piano. So, huh, cure, huh? Let me think. But without going into any details, I do think that uh, uh, Markov's oiliness really really comes off beautifully when uh, Patricia is, is there in the sanitarium uh, be, you know, being shown her, her her father who's acting like a madman because, of course, he's already strapped down. And I think that that, that whole thing, the way in which uh, Jake Harold Nash is playing the mm. the the uh, those scenes, I think it's it's brilliant. And that's where I really find that, uh, I mean, let, let's not forget, Jake Carroll Nash was a very, very good actor. This is a man who he was, was. Nomina- he was nominated for Oscars twice, once before this movie and once after this movie, and he won both times. This is not a guy who uh, who did not know his job and did not know how to do this kind of thing very well. And so uh, I can understand how someone could look at certain aspects, certain sequences in this film, and think that his performance isn't up to some of his other work. But at the same time, holy crap, when he turns on when he turns on the greasiness and the scumbaggery, oh, yeah. it, it, it just oozes off of him. And he's so smooth and slick, it becomes very easy to kind of figure out uh, how he might have been able to get away. Because he seems to be not the most stable human being in the world. You know, but it's very clear that he has enough oily charm to have been able to get himself to to the position that he's currently in. Yes, yeah, and it he's is, very, very plausible. Yeah, exactly. Keeps seeing being plausible with all these other people, so you know, no wonder uh, uh, Talaberell has been caught up in, uh, uh, in 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 his web. And I agree completely uh, what you're saying with this the scene between him and. Uh, uh, and 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 Wanda McKay, where he's, where you, you just see the the threads of his manipulative web just coming together. In he's so slimy. He's going, yeah. Oh, it's that that when you realize, oh wait a minute, he's going to get her to unknowingly tell her father to uh, let her marry Markov. Yeah, and. Yeah, you know, and and neither of them is going to realize what's well, actually, or actually, uh, you know, Morgan does. But but when you see the the way he's doing it, like you said, he's so slick, he's so slimy, and yet so very calm and precise. And you know, the situation uh, for uh, Patricia is such that she, you completely understand why she's behaving the way she is. It makes perfect sense given the information that she has. Very true. Very true. I I, I think that it's. 
it's one of those weird notions that, uh, I mean, not that it hasn't been done in uh, in movies of more recent vintage, but the, the whole notion that somebody would be willing to go so far out of their way to kind of force someone to marry them by blackmailing somebody else is, it's, it's, it's laughable. It's hilarious. It's kind of bizarre. And it, it, it feels very much of the times, you know, it's, this is the kind of thing that would be the plot of, you know, some, uh, silent movies or an 18th century Gothic novel. Well, yeah, exactly. Which is where some of these, you know, some of these, uh, ideas would have been plucked just to, you know, to fill up, uh, bizarre plots and schemes within the, uh, uh, the various films, especially, like I say, in the silent era. But the nastiness within this film, I mean, let's not forget that this is this movie, uh, it got uh, it got labeled uh, with the, the term excessive gruesomeness by the Legion of Decency. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the uh, and that's not something they threw around all that much. Uh, that's that, that boils down to more than just, you know, how Ralph Morgan looks in the, let's admit it, pretty damned effective makeup well uh, yeah i mean it's crude but it it looks an awful like an awful lot like what john hurt would be wearing in the elephant man uh some the best part of 40 years later well not just that it's that i think they were very smart in the design because the design actually allows you to see the, the see the actor underneath it yes and, there, and therefore uh, it, it's it's not as if uh, he's so misshapen that it, it could be anybody under that makeup. You can actually still tell that it is the same guy, that it is yeah. Ralph Morgan. Oh yeah, yeah. I think, and that's key to the the awfulness of what what's happening and the uh, the what you feel for poor uh, uh, Ralph Morgan because yeah, he's still there. Uh, uh-huh. He's there's nothing wrong with his mind. He he. As things progress, he starts to lose the ability to speak, but he he knows exactly what's going on, and it's like both he and Doctor Markov have read the the dastardly script, right? And and <laughs> Morgan knows exactly what's happening to him and why it's happening to him. Like when he confronts uh, Markov, uh, and uh, you know, he basically spells out the whole scheme. Uh, to uh, to Markov, and along with his, you know, he he refuses to play by Markov's script, but boy, it's hard for him to you know to escape from the script, to escape from the chains of those script. It's basically as hard as breaking from the the manacles and the, the shackles that he's physically placed under. Even though he does manage it in the film, I yeah. was uh, I'd forgotten that part of it. I was like, well, how how does this happen? I mean, does the gorilla intervene? I couldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> How, how, do, how do we get to how do we get to the wait a minute okay hold on uh, I will say it is very interesting to me that one of the guys who whose name is attached to the script uh, Pierre Grindon, Grindron, uh actually uh, did he, he was he had his hand in the script for a couple of uh, my favorite of the Poverty Row films uh, Bluebeard and Fog Island oh nice ones yeah. Really, really a fan. Bluebeard's a, a Bluebeard's actually a really good film. It is. And I, I think is. Fog Island is just a. I think it's a real gem in the in the poverty oh, races. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's one I could watch over and over again. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's fun to see uh, George Zuko playing. Well, if he, unlike Dead Men Walk, where he's playing both a sympathetic and um, uh, a sinister character, here he's playing a character who's who's both. And the 
the, the mechanism of what he unleashes in Fog Island is um, is really really delightful. Um, so before we wrap this up, I would like to ask you a simple question. It's like you're champion. You're, you're going out of your way to champion this film. And I, I respect that. And I enjoy it as well. <laughs> I like this movie. I really do. I really do. Um, uh, but what is it? Is it just the gruesomeness that makes this one stand out from the, uh, the other poverty row horrors for you? Or is there, is there some other, uh, some other aspect of it? I, I was, I was wondering about, you know, like maybe when you first saw it, when we first started talking about it or something like that, is it, what is it specifically that really kind of makes you want to stand up there and, 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 uh, proclaim to the world, this one's, this one's worth more than you might think it is. Well, I think it comes down to something you said at the beginning about this being a stew, right? And so there's there's a whole bunch of elements to that stew that have come together in in a way that is more than the sum of its parts. So the the gorilla scene, I both love its randomness. It's uh, <laughs> you know how it it yeah it it doesn't need to be there, but darn it, you're gonna get it, uh, and that. I, uh, just that that baldness uh, and boldness of throwing the gorilla scene in because, it, like like as as if this film understands what we have long been maintaining that there is no film that could not be improved by the addition of a man in a gorilla suit scene and the monster maker true, proves it, yeah right yes. uh, so so there's there's that, but I think but then on the, the flip side of it and and certainly yes the the the, the gruesomeness uh, the uh, you know the, the the monstrous makeup. Once it's there, we get to see it. It's not kept in the shadows for very long. We get a good look at it, and this is again yeah. what, what PRC always delivers. You know the the devil bat. Yeah, it may be on wires, but you're going to see that devil bat over and over again, and you're going to love it. And I do. Uh, and the same thing with the 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 flying serpent. So so it's it's always. Uh, it, it's uh, the monster maker is in keeping with the other PRC films in delivering on its promises, but the flip side of this is strange to say the film subtlety, right? The 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 wordless bit in the opening scene where we see Wanda McKay becoming more and more uncomfortable with the way Nash is staring at her, yeah, uh, and, and 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 trying to to deal with that. The the fact that Nash's performance is underplayed that he has his ranting moments and we we'd be very disappointed if he didn't rant at least once. We got to get one, yeah, you got to get one good mad scientist cackle and you know mad spasm. Yeah, you've got to. Yeah, I mean it's you know again you'd be uh, I, I I'm pretty sure that's written into your constitution now, isn't it? Uh, that that particular <laughs> rule uh, for it should for. Be. For you know, mad scientist films um, has to be yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, if not, then you know, it's certainly an amendment that needs to be considered. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you, you, we get that, but a lot of the time, it is that that plausible, low key quality, which makes some of the speeches even more awful. <laughs> the manipulation that he engages in, because it's so smooth, it just is so horrific. And the the ambiguities surrounding how exactly he has kept uh, Talaberel under his control, and yeah. also the things like uh, the the way her character set up is like you go, oh, okay, yeah, 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 and, you know, designated kill here. We know what's going to happen to her. I mean, she's got, basically got you know dead written all over her forehead, <laughs> and then the fact that the film flips that around. 
and goes somewhere completely different with her, I find uh, really interesting. And so I have to say it's a movie that um, rewards me with something new every time I watch it. And it's just full of all these kinds of little grace notes that for all that it is a tasteless, nasty film for, uh, for his time, which you know, uh, I have to be honest is, of course, part of the appeal as well, uh, as we stated at the outset. But that it also has this intelligence and subtlety that is underpinning all of the the unpleasantness uh, makes it something that I keep going back to over and over again. It is one of the darker of the Poverty Row horror films, and of course that's that's saying a little something considering these these smaller, very low budget uh, productions off, often kind of strode over the line that uh, the bigger studios had long since decided were a bad idea to kind of walk all over. And of course, mm-hmm. that was you know when you when you don't have a big budget, you look for something else that's going to draw in an audience. And, you know, maybe being a little nastier or be, being a little more, uh, shall we say, perceived as dangerous uh, might just draw more people in to see you out of, uh, you know, curiosity. The same reason someone visits a, visits a, a sideshow freak house or something of that nature. So that's natural. But, yeah, this yeah. is one of the darker of the whole grouping. Uh, and, you know, and, it, and that's kind of something to say when you start looking at the, the, the themes within a lot of the Poverty Row horror Oh, yeah. Films. I mean, yeah. holy crap, do they play with <laughs> the darker elements of human nature in those things. They do. They're, they're a little bit like these, these lovely little nightmares where and they have that kind of nightmare logic often, too, don't they? Where you, you know, well, like we were talking about Black, Black Dragons earlier, but, but, but so many of them where you're you're watching a story or and it's like are are you completely awake is this or is this rather than some <laughs> this this sort of weird dream that you've you've uh, fallen through and i mean i i don't know if i should you know uh make some kind of direct comparison between them and uh Carl Dreyer's vampire but there's there's still something of this quasi surreal quality uh to them which uh, I find endlessly appealing and endlessly fascinating. Well, I uh, I happen to agree with you, and uh, that's one of the reasons why I was very glad to uh, have you come on to talk about this. Uh, before we uh, before we sign off here and say goodbye to each other, people might have gotten the impression from our conversation that you're a uh, you're a uh, college professor of some type. But I know you primarily as a writer uh, of a whole lot of different books. Uh, how do you? How would you generally describe yourself in your career? So, uh, well, I write a lot of tie-in fiction for uh, Black Library, where I write uh, novels of Warhammer Forty Thousand, Age of Sigmar, Horus Heresy, and my most recent book with uh, them is uh, Mortarian: The Pale King. I also write for Aconite Books, where I've done uh, some Arkham. Uh, my most recent book there is an Arkham horror novel in the Coils of the Labyrinth. But I've also written a uh, two Doctor Doom novels for them, uh, The Harrowing of Doom and Reign of the Devourer, and the third uh, Doctor Doom book in this trilogy, The Tyrant Skies, where he faces off against the Red Skull, will be coming out in April. How did you get your foot in the door with Marvel? Uh, so 
Aconite Books approached me to write some uh, to write for them, and they uh, not too long after um, I started with them, which is they they've only been around for a few years. They got some uh, licensing rights to do some prose novels with different Marvel characters, and uh, one of the lines was the, the Marvel Untold, which was uh, books regarding the villains, and they, there was a list of uh, possible villains to to write about. And when I saw Doctor Doom on the list, well, uh, I mean Doctor Doom is my favorite Marvel character bar none. Huh. So I would have um, cracked the earth in two to get the chance to write uh, <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Doom, uh, and uh, so I, yeah, you better believe I, I put a pitch together in record time and got that off, and uh, yeah, it's been uh, something of a career high to be able to write um, uh, for, uh, for for him. Um, uh, not to mention, of course, the I mean. I mean, I've had so much good fortune with uh, all the characters I've been able to write for uh, Black Library. Uh, all kinds of dark and monstrous figures in there too. Well, I mean, and I was the, a little—I was more than impressed with the uh, the idea of doing uh, the 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 Arkham stuff that you've been doing. Uh, as a you know, old school Lovecraft is something mm. something I'm just in love with and have been for you know have been for years and years and years. So uh, the 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 seeing the tendrils of that continuing to expand outward is just always wonderful. Tendrils being the operative word. <laughs> exactly. I use yeah. that word decidedly, yes. <laughs> Wanted to once again thank you for coming on here to talk to me about this uh, rather grotesque, sometimes disturbing, poverty row horror film, The Monster Maker from 1944. You know, when this film got released, good Lord, when was it? Uh, April, middle of April, 1944, I really doubt that anybody involved in it thought that anybody in their right mind would be talking about <laughs> it in the 21st century. But uh, here we are proving that uh, probably not being in your right mind is the reason why we are talking about it. And isn't that delightful? It's exactly the way things ought to be as far as I'm concerned. Mr. Annandale, thank you very much for coming on to talk to me about this film. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoy the show, so it's just been a real treat to get a chance to talk with you. Thank you again. Lawrence. Yes, Mark. Weren't you expecting me? You knew I'd have to come to you. Sooner or later, to you, the one man with experience concerning the hideous disease of acromegaly. Oh, you had it cunningly worked out, Marco. So I would be forced to come to you, to you alone for help. Then you would be in a position to dictate your own terms in exchange for that help. Terms which no doubt would involve my daughter Patricia. Oh, you were clever, Markov. Exceedingly clever. As the only man with sufficient knowledge of the disease, not only to alleviate it, but to infect a person with it, you hold a decided advantage. So you see, Markov, I know you infected me with something that caused acromegaly. But how you made the disease develop so rapidly, 
When science has proven that it takes years to reach this stage, I do not know. But you did. And now, Markov, I come to you as you knew I must, to make terms. I've come to make terms. No, no, Lawrence, you, you overestimate my control of the disease. I've made an extensive study of it. Yes, that is true. But after all, I am only an apprentice. Yes, the devil's apprentice. Markov, you have set yourself up as a Frankenstein and created a monster. I am that monster. But if you remember, the monster destroyed the man who created him. What I'm going to do to you. Good work, Steve. Put him on that chair while I prepare an anesthetic. And that's going to wrap up our episode on The Monster Maker from 1944. Glad to finally be talking about the Poverty Row horror film. It's a subject I've been wanting to delve into for a very long time here on the podcast. And uh, this isn't necessarily the film I would have chosen to do first. I would have probably gone with The Devil Bat, which... I think it's just an astonishing film, but uh, good to dip my toes into the Poverty Row horror stuff, no matter what. It's just, uh, man, it's fun stuff. And uh, once again, thanks to David Annandale. He uh, he was a fun partner in crime to talk about these movies, and it does appear that he shares my love for them quite a bit. Uh, those of us who uh, are infatuated with the fo- with uh, Fog Island <laughs> probably need to stick together. But uh, once again, if you've got any comments or uh, suggestions, the email address is thebloodypit at gmail.com. Drop me a line. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, hope everybody's having uh, a good uh, New Year's. Troy and I are going to get back to the 1940s uh, Universal Horror Films in our next episode. So see you then, folks. (laughs) 